Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Generation Z is a demographic group born between the late 1990s and the early 2010s, and they are beginning to trickle into workplaces. The push for open-mindedness to become the norm in modern society means Gen Zers have already been confronted with ideas like fourth-wave feminism, intersectionality, the transgender movement, and wokeism throughout their upbringing. In this episode, I sit down with Acton Institute's college interns from our Emerging Leaders program, Grace Hemmeke and Kara Wheeler, to discuss what it's like to be a young woman on a college campus in 2021. A university's purpose is to train students in developing skills needed to perform a job and instill a desire for the pursuit of higher knowledge. Is this still the case in American universities today? You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by our very own interns, Carol Wheeler and Grace Hemmeke. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This conversation is important because I think the college political climate needs to be addressed from a young woman's perspective. Generation Z, right? We have a 19-year-old. We have a 21-year-old. Both college seniors about to enter the real world. Very excited for you both. And I think this perspective on the PC culture is often overlooked, specifically for the, those those Generation Z students. So let's get right into it. Given the political climate, what has your college experience been? Um, so my college experience, I'm at a small liberal arts Catholic school. Um, and I've kind of realized that college campus is like a microcosm of society at large, but that of a political left progressive society. So anything that you would find on the political left, the beliefs, um, kind of the applications of policies, that is going to be found on college campuses just magnified thousands, thousands of times. Um, and any, especially political correctness, honestly. Um, even the term political correctness is so politically correct on college campuses that you can't even call it politically correct anymore because doing so wouldn't be politically correct. Just the fact that you're questioning the word and, and tainting it as a politically correct term, that means you're questioning it. That means that you don't really believe in it. So I, I would say that anything that can be politicized on college campuses will be politicized on college campuses. You can't really go anywhere or have any beliefs without taking your political party with you. Um, I had a poli-sci professor last year who believed and taught that Bush did 9-11. This was something that he taught in his class, um, and this is something that we had to memorize and regurgitate back to him on a test or on a paper. And then I, I had this intro to ed class. This was a base level education class uh, where my professor, who was a nun, actually, believed that African-American children learn differently than all white kids. So the school system itself is racist. Um, and so I've, I've kind of found myself these past couple of years at this school specifically. I transferred from um, another school in my junior year. So I've been at the school for about two years now. But um I have found that because most of the writing and most of the topics that I'm in school for are social issue related, 
I've found myself catering my writing towards what my professors want to read. So if I have a very liberal professor who teaches that kind of left-leaning thinking or that progressive thinking, I found myself doing better on papers if I cater my writing towards uh, a left-leaning kind of presentation of of my of my topics or of my beliefs of my findings. Um, I, I end up doing better, and if if I stick to my guns and kind of just write what I believe and go all for it, that's when I get papers back with red marks all up and down, questioning my my logic, questioning how I got to this conclusion. And I end up on average doing worse on those papers when I do stick to my guns than with the papers that I kind of cater my writing towards them. So the political correctness culture on campus, it's it's so tense and it's so apparent, at least on my campus, and I imagine even more so on state school college campuses. Um, I kind of forget sometimes that I'm a college student at all because I'm preoccupied with defending my beliefs at all times. Grace? Yeah. So this past semester on my college campus, there was a criminal ethics professor who wore on Zoom class a shirt that said, breathe easy, don't break the law, as a reference to George Floyd. And it was pretty unprofessional for him to do that. But the students in his class kicked up such a huge fuss about it on Twitter. The next day he was fired. So the PC culture is this fear culture that's fast acting, that's just a guillotine that will take your head off socially, career-wise, if you don't say what the politically correct people want you to say. If you don't approve the narrative, if you don't assert that, they will they will end your career. So what is the most oppressive movement right now on campus? Um, I've been at my Catholic school just a little bit over a year now. I transferred from a different Catholic school. Um, it's a small Catholic college, and I'm still surprised to see some of the groups on campus that I'm seeing. The one in particular that I think it, it has good intentions, but it can lead students down a faulty path of thinking is actually our pride group on campus. I'm all for inclusivity. I'm all for the absence of exclusion based on anything. I think there should be a support group for people who do feel like they're excluded. But at the same time, this just reflects the the promotion of the over-sexualization of everything. So the fact that there is a group that promotes a sexual attraction between two men or between a woman and a, another woman, that doesn't have any place on a college campus because that can lead people down a very faulty path of thinking. So thank goodness there isn't a straight or a, heter- a heterosexual group on campus because that promotes that sexual attraction between two college students, which that just shouldn't be on college campuses anyways. That's that's where you get into the over-sexualization of everything that leads to topics of sexual harassment. And so just the fact that that kind of conversation is coming to college campuses, it doesn't make sense when sexual harassment is such a big deal on college campuses and it, it is such a scary thing. But then you have these groups that push for it in a more inclusive kind of way under the guise of inclusivity. The most damaging group on my college isn't an officially organized group. Mm. It's just the school of feminist thought. Mm. And it's so insidious because of that. It's really striking at the heart of Christian society because it's striking at the family and trying to elevate one member of the family at the expense of the others. Like, it's great that women can work just the same as men, but the feminists are pushing for a total role reversal 
in that we want women to become men, to take on all these masculine attributes like the the aggression, the risk-taking of being the CEO boss babe. And at the same time, they're advocating for men to take on traditionally female attributes. Like men should be able to show their emotions, they say. We want men to cry, to be their, their wife's BFF, to be their supporting partner when supporting is the female role. And of course, there are There's honestly biblical examples of men showing their emotions. I mean, Jesus cries in the Garden of Gethsemane. But men are not made to be emotionally driven. Men aren't made to support their wives. Wives are made to support their husbands. Men are made to protect their wives. Yeah, I think think it's very warped. And this is something that the feminist culture has actually succeeded in doing, I think, They're very good, the modern feminists at least, are very good at twisting ever so slightly these positive attributes of what it means to be a a man. So you have all of these positive attributes, these virtuous kind of characteristics of a man. Like let's say a man is um, generous. He's generous and he's driven. Those are good qualities of a man, but a feminist has switched it that now instead of being generous, he's kind of creepy. And now instead of being driven, he's kind of domineering. Mm. They've, they've, Interesting. They've twisted it in such a way that it's not, a, it's not a positive quality anymore. Now it's something that's negative and kind of has ulterior motives. Oh, you think he's a driven man? I think he's super domineering. That's just him mansplaining. You touched on something that I thought was really interesting. How has this changed the dating scene? And now we're talking from a Gen Z perspective, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. Is there still dating at all. Is that still a culture or is it now just like the hookup culture? I think dating kind of is a hookup culture. I think as soon as you lose the aspect of familial supervision that was in traditional courtship, it becomes a hookup culture because it's selfish and it's driven from our own emotions. Dating, it exists because I want to feel good. I want to have a partner who makes me feel good. And as soon as They aren't fulfilling my needs as soon as they aren't fulfilling everything I want. We just drop them, move on to the next one. So I I think that dating has some negative connotations. But courtship, when it's done under the supervision of a family and is done for the purpose of marriage, you're thinking so much about other people. You're thinking about, is this the kind of person that I want my kids to have as a father, as a mother? Is this the kind of person that my parents could live with me marrying? Is this the kind of person who I could have a future with? And now you're thinking about the other person. So I think that dating has become a hookup culture and courtship has just diminished so much from college campuses. Yeah, I think it's really, really important to have the intent of dating be pure and have it be something that's that's geared towards something outside of yourself. Um, And dating with intent is kind of off the beaten path. I feel like most often college students, at least, won't be dating with marriage in mind. It's a cultural norm just to date in college and have a college boyfriend, but then drop him as soon as as soon as college is over. And that's the weird thing about college is that like I said, it's kind of like this microcosm. It's like its own little world. You're only seeing your your boyfriend or your girlfriend in a certain kind of world. And so, like you said, Grace, it's important to know the family of the person that you're dating and to date with intent, to fully know the person and to will the good of that person. Um, I know some people personally who are, they've been dating their boyfriend for maybe six or seven months 
And a common question that can be asked of them is, oh, have you met the family? And that's beyond me. I'm like, how have you not met the family yet? That's something that's, that tells you a lot about the person that you're dating, whether good or bad. So I think the end of da- if the end of dating isn't marriage, then you're doing a disservice to yourself and to the other person. It's a lot of wasted time. It's a lot of broken hearts. And it's a lot of trust issues that will be kind of incorporated into your future worldview for who you do potentially marry. And I think, um, I think to save good marriages and to promote good marriages, we need to start good dating. We need to date well again. And we need to date with the intention of this could be my future wife. This could be my future husband. This could be the future parent of my children. There was a study that came out, I think, last year that said that feminists, they are actually more interested in domineering men and men that take control of things, which I found to be very strange considering that their entire belief system is anti-that. Right. Do you think that... With all that confusion, do you think that's affected how men should be chivalrous or is that even is that even a thing or is that just corny? What, what, what is chivalry now and is that even a, a practiced thing now? I, I think um, to your point about the study, I kind of feel like that that comes from insecurity with feminists. The fact that they would want a domineering man, I feel like that comes from the insecurity that they're promoting this kind of dominant woman, but at the same time, that's not really natural or feminine. It's not really a feminine quality to be a dominant person. It could be virtuous to be a driven person, but it's not It's not virtuous to be a dominant person. So I kind of feel like that comes from the insecurity piece. So they're looking for that in, in a man. But um, to your point on chivalry, I think this is another thing that's been twisted ever so slightly. Um, that it used to be, I mean, honestly, it's rooted in niceness. I think being a chivalrous guy is just being a nice guy and it's been twisted into something that's creepy. This is now something creepy that guys do. Um, and it's also just rooted in the problem. We read into everything and we overanalyze everything. If a man sees a door that's closed, let's go with a classic door example. If a man sees a door that's closed and a woman approaching the door, He's going to see the door. He's going to open the door. Woman walks in, man walks in, end of story. This modern feminist culture has now overanalyzed even this simple exchange of a nice deed. They've seen a door that's closed, a domineering man who opens the door, insinuating that the woman can't do it herself. Mm. So it's just the problem of overanalyzing every single action of another person into something that's, that has ulterior motives, that has a negative connotation to it. It's, and I say, let them believe it. If, if you don't want nice men anymore, okay, we won't have nice men anymore. You won't, you won't see the, that good side of men anymore if you just believe it to be to have ulterior motives. Yeah, so I've got two rainy day examples about this. <laughs> a little while ago, I was out with some friends, pouring rain. We got finished with our shopping, and I had driven, so I offered, as a common courtesy, I'll go get the car, pull it up to the door. And one of the guys said, no, I'll go get the car and pull that up to the door. That was, I believe, I can't speak for men, but I think that comes from the desire to protect. Right, yeah. Can I pull the car up to the door just as easily as a guy can? Yes, but... He wants to protect. There's a masculine drive there. So I let him. Mm-hmm. Other example. On college, pouring rain, a guy who I knew was walking a few yards in front of me. We were coming up to the door. And he opened the door, walked through, and closed it behind him before I had gotten in the building. And to me, that 
it was such a rude thing to do. It wasn't about this chivalrous, oh, being such a great gentleman thing. It was about common courtesy. And if I had been another man behind him, I hope he would have held it open for that person too. It's not about men over women or men versus women. It's about human being being kind to human being. Yeah, exactly. And you touched on it perfect. I mean, it's it's common courtesy. It's common sense to hold a door open for another person. I would hope women do the same thing. It's just something that we read into so much now and we overanalyze so much that oh, has ulterior motives. Do you think men are afraid to be gentlemen? I definitely do. I think the Me Too movement that the feminist movement has promoted has definitely played a big factor into this. And this is this is the thing with the ulterior motives piece that I was talking about. Every move that has ulterior motives and pair that with the over-sexualization of everything, that means every action a man does, whether good or bad, is going to be seen as some sort of sexual move or like uh, an ulterior motive kind of move. So... It's just the issue of things being way more tense than they than they need to be. And this Me Too movement deters men from pursuing women in a good way because every single action could be seen as something that has ulterior motives. And this is because, I mean, the bar has just been set for men so, so, so low by the feminist movement. So men aren't going to achieve anything greater than that if the standard is set so low for them. The feminist movement has set the bar low, so the average man is going to only be held accountable to that low standard. And this goes back to dating apps, too. This this is like the hookup culture, the dating scene that we see. Bumble, Tinder, Hinge, all those things that deters men from being a real gentleman because they can hide behind a phone. They can lustfully look through pictures of women and easily swipe left or swipe right, depending on what they find attractive. That takes out the normal encounter with a human being and puts it to something where men can judge women based on the way that they look, which is the opposite of what the feminist movement should be trying to promote. But that's something that they think sexual liberation is so great. They think dating apps are so great. But in the end, it actually achieves the opposite of what they're promoting. I think we need to make the distinction between boys and men. Boys are afraid to be gentlemen because they're afraid of losing the respect of all these people, the feminists, the Me Too people, right. they're afraid of the consequences of being labeled a misogynist, of maybe having their career, have some shade thrown on their career. Men are not afraid to be gentlemen because they know that they should not want the respect of those people in the first place. If you're a gentleman and that loses you the respect of the feminist culture but gains you the respect of the Christian community— you have gained far more than you have lost, and that's a distinction that definitely needs to be made. So I would say, no, men are not afraid to be gentlemen or chivalrous, but those who haven't fully matured yet might not realize the full extent of what it is they would gain by being gentlemen. Yeah. Let's go back to the college campus, the college culture. I've noticed that there's this strong hatred slash racism for people who are not of color for people who are just, I guess, white or whiter complexion? I mean, are, are you guys noticing this on, on your college campus? I mean, is there – there's actual schools now that are practicing segregation. Uh, I think that's mind-blowing. I mean, I thought we, we moved past that, but now history is literally repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Are you guys experiencing this hatred on your on your college campuses? I'm not so much experiencing any kind of like racism or hatred towards white people. In my 
my kind of um, understanding behind it and the way that I see it is that you you really just have to understand what it means to be a human person. And when you understand that and what it means, what we are called to be, it doesn't matter if you're white or black. The, that For some reason, this has been way more confusing than it needs to be. And I think we need to go back to basics and what it means to be a human person and that it it doesn't need to be so tense on college campuses or anywhere for that matter. Um, and I think I haven't experienced it personally, but I do think it's coming. I think even on my college campus, it's probably coming for students after me. But and then that's that's kind of due to ideas like critical race theory. Um, these are being promulgated across the nation now. And I think if the only thing that critical race theory is going to achieve is racial tension. It's actually racist in its application of thought more so than it solves any kind of racial tension. Um, now, it's, it says the kind of rhetoric that um, black people learn differently than white people or everything that we do is, is racist. Um, so it's kind of separating the two races um, automatically just in its thought process and the way that it applies its worldview to everything. So it actually achieves some form of racism more than it solves. Grace? I don't know if it is to my college's credit or discredit. They have only had one Black Lives Matter protest, and they did it because they wanted to assert the very Christian, very biblical belief that black lives do matter. Sure. They definitely do. All lives do matter. What happened was that the whole protest ended up looking like a support of the BLM movement which, if you go to their website, has some very non-Christian beliefs attached to them. So the administration accidentally (laughs) ended up supporting something that they never meant to support in the first place. While it was definitely good that they were supporting the idea that Black Lives Matter, they threw their lot in with a lot of other non-biblical beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen any reverse racism or racism against white people. We have been promoting the idea that Black Lives Matter, and I think rightfully so, but it has not gone to any extremes yet. You know, I remember when I was a child, my parents never spoke to me about race. It was never brought up in school, and having black neighbors at the time was was just – to me, it was just, oh, I have neighbors. Yeah, exactly. The the, the skin color was never an issue for anybody. Yeah. And growing up, I just – that's just what we thought. It was just a human. Mm-hmm. There, there, there really, there really wasn't a discussion about race. Period. But it's not just them. It's it's not just children. It's it's young adults. It's college students. We're discussing something that is so elementary, mm-hmm. that is so basic that it shouldn't even be discussed. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's really not that confusing. <laughs> like I had um, black friends growing up. They were my friends. I, I never thought twice about what their race could mean to me or if I had some subconscious racism in my I had to study that and see if I I had these like covert kind of racist understandings of who they were as, as a person no they were my friend right it's not that confusing <laughs> there, there was never a moment in my life where I said hey mom I'm gonna go hang out with my black friends Mm-mm. there was it was just I'm gonna go hang out with my friends yeah and good <laughs> right. go hang out with your friends go be a kid you don't have to worry about that kind of thing it confuses them more than makes them social warriors yeah. I, I think that comes from our culture's tendency to read into everything mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Big time, big time. Let's talk about the dichotomy between career and motherhood. Do you feel that at one point in your life, you're focused on career and then 
out of left field, you just start focusing on motherhood? And do you feel that there's like this tug and pull internal war going on? Or can you reconcile the two? Yeah. So they don't exclude each other. There isn't a dichotomy. It's a woman's first calling to be a mother. And that comes from Genesis 1 in God's dominion mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. But there's also this call to steward our resources and not being in a relationship. I can't be a mother right now. So that means that I have to prepare for a career because that's the opportunity God's put before me. I'm definitely willing to be interrupted in my career preparations should God provide a future husband for me. But right now I'm working on what I can work on, which is career. And should a opportunity to be a mother arise, I would willingly take that. Yeah, I agree with that too. I, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive at all. Um, I think my vocation more so lies in being a motherhood and the way that I want to become the best version of myself lies in being a mom. Um, that's not to say that I couldn't adopt some kind of virtues in being a career woman. But the issue that I have now is the fact that college is so expensive. It's so expensive. And so I'm I'm paying for my own school, and I have to take that into account. It's important to be prudent about if you can't afford kids and if you can't, you want your kids to have a very good life. And this is the problem with college in general, just the fact that it's almost like a mandatory social experience and the fact that it costs so much money. is It's, it's going to make it difficult for women to be able to just drop everything and become a mom and drop their career and become a mom if they really want to be. So I think there is kind of a tug and pull between career and motherhood. I think it can be done, absolutely. I think you can have both. I think you can also drop your career and just focus on being a mom. It depends on where you believe your best, like the best version of yourself can come from and where you can become the most virtuous person. But what you can't do is drop your motherhood to become a career woman. No, <laughs> I would say no, you can't do that. Those are kids that are depending on you back at home and it's it's your duty. It is your duty to bring them up as Christian kids. That's your first and foremost job. First and foremost, as in it's more important than a career. Yep. Being a mom is more important than a career. Absolutely. Why is there such a strong hatred for anything that is familiar or traditional? And I and I ask this in terms of or in the perspective of feminism and the political correctness culture that's on campus. I think that anything that is traditional, there's a strong backlash against that. Why do you think that is? Well, most tradition, most good traditions come from biblical values. So I'm not at all surprised that the culture is trying to destroy them. Friendship with God is enmity in the world. And they're just, they're always going to try to ruin traditions, to ruin biblical values. I think we can cling too strongly to tradition, but in most cases, it's derived from God-given rules and from God-given virtues and from the things he wants us to do with our lives. I like that you said that we can sometimes cling too close to tradition. What do you mean by that? So as a Protestant, I believe that God's word is the highest and only order for our life. And I think that if you if you put anything else on a level with that, that you're bound for trouble. I think there's so many good things that the church fathers and the saints have written that we can learn so, so much from, but they are not equal in weight and value as God's word. So I think that the traditions of man can often cloud our vision and start to eclipse God's word. Take the 1950s, for example. Sure. There was 
too much there of the the stay-at-home mom, the don't-be-a-working-mother. That was a tradition that definitely eclipsed God's Word. Because in the Bible, we have examples of working women, like the Proverbs 31 woman. And it's not wrong for a woman to work. In the 1950s, there was too much pushback against women working. Mm. Yeah, I think, Grace, you bring up really, really good points. Um, I I personally think that there is a strong hatred for anything that's familiar or traditional because most of these things that I believe have worked for decades and decades, they're, in, they're rooted in selflessness. Um, and it, it's things like a commitment to your work or your career. It's providing for a family. It's fidelity in a marriage. It's the promotion of family life. Those are all traditional aspects, I would think, and those are things that I would want to abide by still. And since these things are rooted in objective selflessness or just a giving of oneself, these are things that contradict modern society obsession with placing your feelings and your emotions at the helm of all the decisions that you make. It just it, it goes against the truth that when you when you do act selflessly, when you give yourself entirely, you achieve fulfillment in the most genuine way. Um, and when you you put yourself first in all in all actions and only thinking about how something is going to affect you, which is what's happening in our modern era, um, that that's going to lead you down a, a path of isolation, frustration, loneliness, just a, a feeling you're, you're just going to be feeling unfulfilled at that point. Grace, do you think your perspective on womanhood is different than millennials? So I think the millennial perspective is that they want the 50-50 society where men and women can equally share the burdens of work and family. My perspective is different because I believe in a 100-100 society where men do 100% of their masculine role as provider of the family, and women do 100% of their feminine role as the nurturer of the family. You just can't split up these different gender roles that we have. Men cannot carry a baby 50% of a pregnancy. So why are we expecting women to provide 50% of a household income? They have other things that they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be making the home the place where people want to live. They're supposed to be tending their family. They're supposed to be teaching their children. But when you chop everything in half and tell men and women that they both have to do 50% of all of their jobs, you lose the beauty that God created in our gender roles. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think even that kind of philosophy and that way of thinking can relate to good marriages and the fact that a good marriage is going to be 100%, 100% from both from both people at all times. First and foremost, marriage is a commitment to the other person and to will the good of that person. So if you're working 100% at all times and you you trust that your, your partner is doing the same thing, that's going to be a good marriage right then and there. Um, as far as my perspective being different from the millennials, I think it would be different. But granted, I feel like my opinion is different from a lot of modern um, opinions as well, just on who women are and what we're called to be. And I feel as though that's because I am constantly learning more and more about my faith and about truth. And the closer I draw c- towards Christ, the more I feel fulfilled and the more I understand who I am called to be as a woman. And I would love to share that kind of fulfillment and that feeling of peace with as many other women as I can, because it's true and it's good. And 
it's when you learn to draw yourself closer to Christ and to Scripture um, and to the church that you you do truly feel fulfilled. Where do you see yourself in 10 years, Grace? Hopefully I'm a wife and mother. I don't know if that will happen. So in 10 years, I am planning on having a career and stewarding the opportunities and resources that God God has given to me. What about you, Kara? Um, I could also see myself as a mom in 10 years. And it's funny, this isn't because I think men or society like hold me down in any way. Actually, on the contrary, I feel as though I have a higher calling than a certain career simply for the feeling of financial success. Um, this is because most of the virtues that I strive for, are they're kind of found in the daily life of being a mom. So virtues like patience, generosity, humility, charity, hope, you name it. I think those are things that I am constantly striving for, and I believe that those those kind of attributes will be attained through being a mom. And I've had my share, my fair share of past full-time and part-time jobs, and I know that the feeling of success and financial success can only leave you feel so fulfilled. Um, and I believe that women were made for so much more than that and to be as virtuous as God has called them to be. And I know that moms can be this virtuous and be this um, selfless kind of woman operating outside of themselves at all times because I had a great example of what that means from my own mom. Um, she operated outside of herself at all times, and I can see how happy she is now done raising her children, how fulfilled she is in this stage of her life. So I'm not I'm not searching for this financial success, but more so of a moral success. And I think that being a mom would help me achieve that. But I also understand that if being a mom isn't in the picture for me, then that's okay. I know that because of the equality, that's a reality for women. Um, and thanks to the past feminist movements, I do agree with that. I know that because we are equal in society, I could attain a job, attain a career, and try to find different avenues to live out a virtuous life in some other capacity. But I do believe that it would be it would be a little bit more difficult to attain those same virtues in a career more so than it would have been if I if I was um, called to be a mom. Grace, do you think your answer would be different if you weren't bombarded with the PC culture? Well, since PC culture is a fear culture, I think I'd be a lot more vocal and a lot more open about my desire to be a wife and mother. It's really easy to get scared on college campuses or to get comfortable with people telling you lies or half-truths about what it means to be a woman, which means it's really easy just to let that all go over your head, to not say anything, not assert the truth. So I, I think I would be more open, more vocal about my desires if it wasn't for PC culture. Yeah, um, my answer would absolutely be the same, to put it shortly. Um, I'm not really influenced by the PC culture, like at all. Um, I know what's the truth and I know what my guiding principles are, so I'm going to follow that instead of the fleeting societal standards. Um, but I know that this isn't the case for every woman, and that's unfortunate. Um, so if I would have listened to the feminist propaganda, I can definitely see how that would have infiltrated the, my way of thinking, and maybe my answer would have been different. But because I have that foundation of faith and a foundation of believing in principles, values, truth, um, I, it doesn't affect my answer. What would you tell college freshmen as they enter college? <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> I would probably tell them that the pressure that you felt your junior and senior year to find, like, the perfect school that would complement you as a person, 
that's not going to lead you to any sort of fulfillment. Um, you can't really place your identity in the school that you're going to. Um, that's just going to leave you feeling frustrated. Um, and college in general, I kind of have these two opinions on it that are kind of countercultural. So I, I, I do believe that college is just confusing because you have all of these adult formalities, like you're paying for school maybe. It's your first time living away from home. You have these accountabilities for these commitments that you've committed yourself to. Um, and it's mixed with these immature and childish outlook on life that most college students have. So these are things like never being sober, sleeping in all the time, cheating on everything. So you have all of these like adult situations where this is the first time the world sees you as an adult, but you complement that with an immature and childish outlook on life. So don't be that person. Don't think that you have to succumb to all of these childish and immature kind of this kind of worldview that these are your selfish years. And that's something that I hear all the time is that college is your selfish years. But that's that's never going to lead you to a life of fulfillment by put, placing yourself first in every in every decision that you make. So I I think it's kind of confusing that you're in this adult kind of world, but you're most often the college student has a very um, immature way of going about these things. But I also think it's overrated. I think college is extremely expensive. And we have had a discussion on this before, Gabriel, just about how I understand the point of college when it's something technical that you're learning and it's something that you you really do need to learn a valuable trade or a valuable skill before you go out into the workforce. Take a surgeon, for example. I would hope that they'd go to college before they are operating on me. But for me, I'm an English major. So most of what I do is reading books. And most of what's assigned to me is reflection on those books. So I personally think that it's college, the college experience that you hear about is completely overrated. It costs a lot of money. Um, it's four years of your life. You have your whole life ahead of you. So I would probably tell incoming freshmen those two things, which that's kind of negative. I would want I would want to give them some hopeful things too. So maybe I would just say, you know what? Study. Have a good time. Make a couple of really good quality friends and make sure that these kind of these lies that are given to you by professors study outside of what the professors tell you to do and be curious. Ask questions about what you're learning and what the professor thinks about it and do studying on your own. Um, and yeah, if, the, if these aren't the best years of your life, that's okay. That They don't have to be the best years of your life. Oh, and you should call your mom a lot. <laughs> Love it. Grace? I would say it's very likely that you are not going to be educated in college. What you will do is learn helpful information about a specific field. But you're going to face a culture that is openly hostile to you and your Christian beliefs, and that culture is not going to be passive. They will actively try to turn you around, to confuse you, to wear away at your morals every class, every day. I hope that's not the case, but in so many colleges across the country, it is. So you need to know your facts. You need to know your Bible. You need to know your history. If you don't know that, somebody's going to come and tell you something, and then you're going to get completely turned around because you're accepting mixed messages. Um, a lot of Christian students are going onto campus with their eyes wide open, well aware of this. Good for you. But don't be expecting the ultra-atheist Carl Sagan professor to come in and crush you. That's not going to happen. You might have that professor, but Christians don't apostatize that way. They get turned around very slowly. You're going into a four-year-long battle. 
You will not have rest unless you find a good Christian community, find a good church, find good Bible study, find the friends who you can trust, who believe what you believe, advance God's truth. Don't be passive. The culture is not going to be passive. You shouldn't either. If you can't do that, at least don't tell the lies that they're telling. They can force you to be quiet, but they can't force you to tell lies and they can't force you to lose your immortal soul. Kara, Grace, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Gabriel. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.